I'd like to start with a poem, another beauty by Mary Oliver, appropriate for this time of year and this time of the retreat. It's called Wild Geese. You do not, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls you, like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. <clears throat> Last week, I started the talk of the four supporting virtues of mindfulness or qualities that sustain this moment-to-moment -moment awareness make it our own, make it our moment-to-moment -moment experience. Every molecule of our being, being mindfulness. So I talked last week about confidence, remember? That initial faith that grows from tenderness into the strength of trust and, and uh, matures with our own direct experience and seeing the nature of our mind and body moment to moment. And the, the, the effects of this faith mind, venturing spirit, you know, risking to go beyond what's known, what feels safe and secure, and leaping beyond our little attachments that give us a sense of who we thought we were. Venturing spirit and tranquility, that ability to completely relax the mind and let go in the moment and let that intuitive insight, awareness, be our only guide, our only guide. And then I spoke of courage, courageous energy, the strength of mind that is attached moment to moment to mindfulness. It's an energetic presence of mind, the virya, the energy that allows the sustaining of moment to moment awareness. And it's also that big courage that makes our life our practice, that's inclusive of everything we do. Nothing outside the realm of our attention, of our full wholeheartedness. Nothing in retreat, nothing outside of retreat. It's not part of our journey to liberation. Big courage, strength of heart. And tonight I'd like to uh, talk about the other two, patience and renunciation. Oh, I ended last week talking about that, that baseball concept, playing within yourself. And I said, uh, there's actually, it was a powerful Dhamma teaching. There's a word in the Pali, opanayiko. Opanayiko has that same sense of being within oneself, to find for ourselves the sense of fully being within ourselves. So that our awareness, our consciousness, our heart-mind feels, 
senses, understands the fruits of our moment-to-moment awareness, connects us with the moment, with this inner, profound inner work that we're doing, and the process itself, that we attune to this as process. There's nothing to reach forward to or bring back that's already passed. It's all process. This mind and this body is nothing but flux, but change, but transience. And attuning to that is like just being along for the ride, like being carried by the Dhamma. That's being within oneself. It's the maximum power that we can put out within our limits in any given moment, sitting, day, throughout the day. You know, the biorhythmic energy's low, pull it in. You pull the sense of reach of our awareness, pull it in. You know, don't go for the big stuff, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff. Make it simple. Just come back to body, breath, just touch the edges of experience, sounds. Maximum power with whatever limitations of energy we have in the moment. That's using all of our spiritual faculties. That'll bring back the faith necessary. That'll call in the courage of what we have manifested in that moment-to-moment awareness. And in this way, uh, that sense of being within ourselves is a continuous surrender to the practice itself and the trust that the practice bears its own fruits. Nothing that we do, nothing that we want, nothing that we seek, nothing that we effort to get rid of. That the, our own way is what's unfolding. You know, and it's a mystery, and it's a surprise. And the attempt to uh, make it different is usually an obstruction. You know, it's a hindrance. Many years ago, about 20 years ago, uh, a, a, Burm, a Burmese woman from the monastery where I practice, the Mahasi Center in Rangoon, came to Hawaii to train as a nurse. And um, so I was helping her out, and she wanted to learn to drive. So when she went back to Burma, she could drive the nuns and monks you know, to the hospital and whatnot. Oh, yeah, sure. I never taught anyone to drive before. And I took her up back of this valley, Manoa Valley, the bird sanctuary, to this parking lot. There's only like two cars in this huge, huge parking lot. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> and it was my mom's car. <laughs> A 1979, you know, Monte Carlo. She still has it. <laughs> she hasn't driven it for 10 years, but it just sits like a trophy in her garage, and the dent is still in there. <laughs> I just said, I said to, you know, I said, Ma, just slight turns, just a little bit of turn, you know? And so it was like, meow. <laughs> Huge parking lot, one, two cars parked next to each other, and, and wham. That brings us to patience. (laughs) (laughs) You see patience a lot in the Buddhist teachings. First and foremost, again and again in the text, Buddha says patience is the path to Nibbana, the path to freedom, to liberation. We take our attention, you know, we turn it inwards and make make the understanding our own, then the mind begins to widen, begins to have breadth as well as depth. The patience, which is a power, is the ability of 
is, it is the non-opposition to whatever experience is arising and passing. And think of it. Whatever experience is arising and passing, no matter how painful, anguishing, excruciating, or blissful, ecstatic, patience is, is the power to accept that moment's experience and do nothing. Not chase what's pleasant, not resist what's unpleasant. This is where we uh, feel those snags. This is where we feel the resistances. We come to have an understanding of them, you know. We come to appreciate, bow in homage, that these resistances to feeling difficult or ecstatic experience was our own way of protecting our gold, our worthiness, our preciousness when we were too young to have the strength of heart, the compassion of heart to deal with unbearable experience. So yeah, we learned how to resist, we learned how to numb out, we learned how to fantasize, we learned how to use anger, to use uh, intellect, to use story, not to feel experience. Patience is a power because it breaks through these resistances after the understanding of why they're there. Not the condemnation, not the demonizing, but the deep understanding of why they're there in the first place. Resistance, too, is natural phenomena. Resistance, too, is arising due to conditions. Resistance, too, is dhammas to be known. Widening the mind to feel that the patience itself becomes, becomes a protective canopy for our hearts and minds so that we can go to the underlying deeper experiences of pain or long-suppressed joy, passion, zest, connection. It's a non-opposition to truth the truth of our, of our own experience. And we see that at a certain point in our spiritual growth, a certain, uh, in our spiritual maturity, that you know, opposing experience, wanting it to be different than what it is, being attached to outcome, is, uh, you know, is, is optional dukkha. You know, there's just the dukkha of our experience, but of the reactive mind is, is extra. We choose that, especially as we, you know, gain in strength and courage, confidence. We have to inch a little bit more into those resistances and feel them, and that allows a certain safety net for what's in our depth to arise. Really being with discomfort and taking refuge in, in the present moment. This is what patience does. It, it allows this refuge. It's okay. Just what's coming up now. There is only now. <clears throat> One of my very f first teachers was a, a Zen master and martial artist from China who I worked with in the, in the 60s. Um, and he's one of those wizards that you keep learning that he knows something more. <laughs> you know, I first went to him to, to learn uh, Tai Chi. And after a year, you know, then I learned he knew other arts as well. Pakwa and, and uh, uh, other martial arts and I came in one day sick and I learned he knew acupuncture and Chinese herbs. This is after like three years, you know? And then one day we started to meditate. Uh, and every time I came, I'd have uh, books, you know, spiritual books, big stack of spiritual books I'd be reading and, and asking questions after, I'd say some five years, 
into working with him, uh, Master Pang, Su Yao Pang. Af after a, a training session, a meditation one day, walking outside to my car, a stack of books, Adventures of Consciousness and, you know, all this stuff. I was asking him a question about moksha, an Indian word, Hindu word for liberation. He just must have known the moment. He turned around, he looked at me, caught my gaze. He said, there's no moksha. There's only now. Be careful of chasing your own shadow for the rest of your life. There's only now. I nearly dropped the books. I never stopped reading them, but uh, my attitude toward them changed greatly and uh, began to uh, find practice matching what I was reading and using the, the information from reading and later Dhamma uh, talks and whatnot as a way of clarifying or inspiring, not as a really a, a deep, pure way of knowing. There's only now. So patience, patience helps us to be not so bothered by our, uh, you know, our habitual habits, just the things that we, little patterns we begin to know, all our little compulsions and obsessions. Without the patience, they're not going to go away. And let's face it, some of them are never going to go away. <laughs> We're just going to have to learn to live with them. Certainly, dukkha is never going to go away. And in many of its forms and how it manifests in the mind, you really have to engage in a mindful relationship with those patterns. It's just how it is. And they become our teachers. They become ways of coming back to the moment, not the enemy. So we don't know which ones are going to recede, become more transparent, fall away completely. You know, or remain a predominant presence in our lives. We don't know which ones. Just all of a sudden, one day, you find we relate to something completely differently than we ever did before. Well, what happened? What did I do? It's a mystery of practice. Somewhere along the line, through our mindfulness, the conditions no longer arose for that particular habit pattern. In that particular situation, no trigger to go into the obsession. We don't know. So in the meantime, you know, it's just being with the things as they come up. At a retreat, Michelle and I teach in uh, British Columbia every year at the Hollyhock Center. One year, some 10 years ago, um, a Zen practitioner sat at our retreat. In the Zen tradition, as many of you know, everything is neat and everything has its place. Especially, you know, around the meditation hall, shoes and sandals and slippers are neatly put in places, not in Vipassana. <laughs> <laughs> the relaxed tradition. <laughs> so she was, the, you know, for three quarters of the retreat was just obsessing, you know, and trying to straighten out all these shoes every time, <laughs> being the last one to come in the hall so she can do that, thinking maybe, you know, the yogis would get it. <laughs> but no, you know, we leave our shoes off wherever we leave them off and go in and sit. And at the end, she had a real breakthrough, you know. She's, she accepted the messiness of life. <laughs> Started to throw her own shoes around. <laughs> Patience helps us let go the need to control. Patience helps us let go the need to control experience within or without 
That's one of the subtlest meanings of anatta, selflessness, emptiness, the uncontrollability of experience. Because of conditions, certain things arise. When those conditions are no longer there, what has arisen passes away. So likewise, you know, striving for our results endlessly is unsatisfactory, is that optional dukkha. It's a, it's a balance, you know, because the image I use of in the Polynesian navigation, keeping the, keeping the vision of the island in mind so we don't lose our way. That is, you know, the Polynesians hold a sense of the island and the canoe in their imagination, in their intuitive imagination. But then are in totally in the moment, as I've said, to deal with the turbulent systems of currents, rain, wind, clouds, changes, colors, everything. And when they need the inspiration, you know, bring again the vision of the island and mind. Likewise, that vision of a, our own enlightened mind, of the own, our own purity of heart. You know, good to hold and visit, but not strive for, or we'll miss how to use the turbulent systems of our experience, the mind and body, emotions, sensations, and sounds and sights, relationships and everything to guide our way. We're stuck on some result. We're attached to some goal. We won't be here only now in the moment. We won't be able to navigate. We won't hone our skills of confidence and courage and patience and renunciation. We'll get lost. And we do, and find our way back. These are a cultivation too. Patience is a cultivation. It's said in the text, even if we felt fear or anger, the size of the great oceans. You know, think of the Pacific Ocean, 10 million square miles. A boiling cauldron of anger, you know, or drying up with fear. Patience is like making our awareness the shore that surrounds the sea. That kind of widening of the mind. When we can do that, it becomes just fear or just anger. And on a biological level alone, we can go deep into its core and find nothing but just moments of energy. And those moments of energy change from the contraction of fear or the attack of anger, they begin to change into just energy. We're holding it with this patient, equanimous awareness. It can do no damage. It transforms right there in the eye of mindfulness, in the coolness of mindfulness. Flames can be all around, the Buddha said to us but the heart can be cool. Mind can be centered in the midst of that. The closest other quality, and, uh, and the Buddha said actually that at times they are one and the same to patience, is metta, loving kindness. So our loving-kindness, our active loving-kindness practice that you do, some of you every day, is the practice of patience. Why? Because it's the same quality of developing this unconditional acceptance, not judging, quality of care and kindness just as we are, just with, at peace with things just as they are. We don't have to think 
uh, very much. It's very much a part of our practice. Mindfulness develops patience. Metta develops patience. A broad, accepting experience of ourselves. I might have mentioned already, but I'll mention again, you know, watching um, my mom age and now being the parent, you know, in the beginning, a couple years after um, my dad died um, in 1997, she began, you know, a steady kind of decline of all her faculties. She still has spirit and she still has quality of life, but you know, things are really breaking down. In the beginning, it was really hard to accept. I wanted, I wanted mom, you know, I wanted, I was attached to who she was. And I'd keep correcting her when she'd, you know, as her mind got more psychedelic <laughs> and, and said things that were, made no sense, or the repetitive thing that comes with dementia. Mom, you already said that. And, you know, just look, found that my own impatience and irritation and went in there and, and reflected on, you know, what the Buddha said about our parents. We could carry them on our backs for the rest of our lives and never really re repay the debt of gratitude. You know, no matter how difficult our lives might have been, they brought us into this world, this really precious short life that we can do this work whatever the conditions were, to cultivate that gratitude, and there may be forgiveness involved in that, it's still a, a powerful um, practice to view our parents as having given all that they could for our well-being. So that helped me become the parent. My mom's now like my child, and I'm the parent. It's kind of fun. I get to tell her what to do now. She used to, you know, be the one telling me what to do, and she listens to me. Sometimes the caretaker calls and says, you know, she's not going to get up to go to the doctor this morning. And so, you know, I'm six thousand miles away. Put her on the phone, and I, mom. Oh, hi, Steve. Mom, you have um, you have to go to the doctors today because they want to take care of you. They want to look, you know, and make sure everything's okay, and that uh, uh, if you go now, you won't have to go again for a long time. And whatever I, you know, whatever I have to say, what she'll have an answer and a reason. Well, but I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Yes, mom, but. Sometimes we go anyway, you know. It's kind of a fun ride. <laughs> we know the doctor, right? We like her. And then, you know, sometimes I bribe her. You like chocolate, don't you, Mama? <laughs> so it's a, a patience is the attitude, the combination of attitude of of love and non-attachment. Brings those two together. Broadness, accepting mind, whatever is arising and passing, the non-opposition. And the wise detachment, not identifying with it, not reacting to the experience. Another car. Nice, maybe a little bit about cars. I've only ever bought one car, and um, and uh, it was a black, black Jeep, ten years ago. First thing you know, I ever you know borrowed money and started to pay off, and it was I took care of it, washed it, you know, got a cover for it, never used it. Used to wax it every week, and then um, coming back from teaching, my dad was there to pick me up at the airport, 
and Michelle. And really happy to see us. My dad was a very affable, loving person. He had a cart already for us, for the luggage, and wheeled it up and uh, gave me a hug and gave Michelle a big hug and kiss, let go of the cart with the luggage in it, which then turned around and wheeled right back down into the, banged into my new car, <laughs> making a dent. And this, this is my dad, his response was, oh, whenever you see that, you'll think of me. <laughs> so I've never fixed the dent. <laughs> I never have sold it, and it's right. Whenever I think of him, I smile, and I feel that firm grasp, you know, of a father's hand. Another poem to end um, the part on grief, I mean the part on patience. The poem's called... <laughs> <laughs> the poem's called Grief. <laughs> it's by a Native American woman, Louise uh, Erdrich. Sometimes you have to take your own hand as though you were a lost child and bring yourself stumbling home over twisted ice. Whiteness drifts over your house. A page of warm light falls steady from the open door. Here is your bed, folded open. Lie down. Lie down. Let the blue snow cover you. The Pali word for renunciation is kaja. C-A-G-A. C-long-A-G-A. -A -A, -A, kaja. It's a word that means the highest kind of generosity. The highest level of generosity or giving. Just the opposite of what we might, the connotations that we may have around that word, renunciation. And in the text, renunciation is often called, is often regarded as meditation itself. Think about it. Moment to moment. Feeling and letting go. Moment to moment. You know, there's only now. There's only this moment. Mindfulness only works in the present moment because we can only feel reality real experience, non-conceptual experience in this present moment. Not by memory, but by the just now arising, heat, tingling, vibration, pulsing. The just now little particles of sound or light. The elements of the emotional body. The stream of mind. They're only appearing now. In fact, what we experience is what's passing away. When the mind is very still, that's what we see. Just things passing away. Mindfulness just touching the tail of the experience. That's how silent the mind get, gets. Think of mindfulness as faster than the speed of light. You know, we can think right now, the other end of the universe. It's a devastatingly mysterious thought, you know, what other end of the universe. But we can put our minds way out there faster than light moves, right? Mindfulness allows consciousness, therefore, to attune to this moment's experience, the speed with which physical sensations appear vanish, and 50 times faster, according to the Buddhist psychology, the speed with which mental moods, emotions, states, and elements appear and vanish. 
Only mindfulness can do that. Thoughts are too slow and clunky. And plus thoughts don't connect with felt experience. They interpret it. Renunciation is meditation. Renunciation is letting go. Renunciation is the greatest support, perhaps, of all in mindfulness, in sati. It's the generosity of, of everything, of possibility, you know, of everything being purified. All the toxins of the mind and body just falling away. It's the nature of the practice. It's the, the core of our being is this innate urge toward purification, wholeness, fulfillment, and liberation. So what is being let go of in this particular sense of the word kajja, that's generosity? Uh, I first got a hit of it when my teacher said, sometime into practice, and Saira Upandita said to me, you only have to do one thing here. And I, I opened my heart. He said, you, you only have to be in the present moment. I will take care of everything else. So that's what a retreat is. Your, your, your task or your intention, every day, every moment, every waking moment is being in the present moment. The retreat center and staff and teachers, the grounds, the surround, everything is taking care of everything else. Where on earth can that ever happen? How often in our lives can we do that? All we have to do is to practice being in the present moment. Yes, it's really challenging, it's really difficult. These patterns, these pains, these things we don't think are natural or shouldn't be here, obscure the quality of acceptance, make it difficult to have this attitude of generosity of mind that lets go. But it happens. There's a radical shift from the sense of collecting, the opposite of renunciation, collecting things, ideas, opinions, traditions, teachers, ways of practice, techniques, spiritual insights and experiences. We're collectors. In meditation and as the fruits of that in life itself, this kaja, this immense filling of generosity, allows us to hold lightly our relationship with our views, our things. You know, to regard past experiences as just that. An insight never goes away. The difference between vipassana practice and concentration practices is that the, the benefits we gain from concentration practice, the serenity, the tranquility, the peacefulness, the calm, they depend on that one-pointed fixed attention. Vipassana practice, it's non-fixed, it's fluid awareness in order to match the fluidity of, of, of life itself, of experience. And so therefore the insights are about the truth of life, the changing nature, the emptiness. And those are very powerful seeds planted in the stream of consciousness. They don't go away even if you were to stop meditating for 10 years and get lost again in the world. If you came back to practice, like watering a parched land, you know, holding a seed that's been in the soil dry for years and years, 
like watering parched land, we do the practice again, and the insights come forward. You know, that's, that's why making our life our practice is of such value, trying to be mindful all the time. You know, learning how to even anchor in awareness itself, in the mind itself. Because it's, it's all we do throughout the day. It's just moments, mind moments. Moments, moments of experience or moments of consciousness. The one arising now is totally different than the previous one. And the consciousness arising now, when it passes away, is it's totally different from the next arising moment of consciousness. The only relationship is a transmission of influence. So that if we are practicing generosity, our love, that mind moment, that moment of consciousness, that moment of experience, imbues, influences the next moment of consciousness with that love. Our attachment, our anger, our fear, our joy. That's why our practice has an, has an effect. Slowly but surely, moment by moment, inch by inch, we are transforming how we think, how we speak, how we move with our bodies. And understanding the velocity with which everything is changing. So that radical shift where we suddenly would rather let go of things rather than hold on to them. That's renunciation. It's freeing. It's liberating. It's, that's, that's the intention that comes up. God, I don't have to carry this anymore. It's like having have a, a backpack full of rocks uphill and then take that off. And this lightness that comes from not having to carry that at all. It also means, in practice, renunciation means not, not expecting anything. Not expecting anything. Just, we can't hear that too much. Just our conditioning is so strong for results and for linear, successive results of practice. I like to say when we enter retreat space, we enter non-ordinary space and time. We enter mythological time. Space and time are more concepts. And as some of you are seeing, when these concepts form, fall away, it's bizarre, you know? Time is so re relative, and space is so relative. Where does the body end? And the surround, the environment, begin. You know, it's not so. That's why sometimes you f one feels their body becoming very compact, like stone almost, or sometimes compressed into a pea, the size of a pea, our bodies. Or expand, start filling the space around us, filling the room outside of the meditation hall. Sometimes there's no experience of the body at all. So subtle, so silent the awareness, and so neutral the elements, so balanced fire, water, earth, and air. You know, so balanced temperature, cohesion, texture, that it, it can't even be known. All that can be known is knowing itself. It's really bizarre. There's nothing that happens in our practice that's that's that bizarre. It seems bizarre, but it's all normal, you know, in terms of practice. I I once was had a retreat and I was sitting in my room mostly and my body just started going through the most normally bizarre contortions you can imagine. My first started with my face and my jaw and my neck and then, you know, my whole body 
and, and I was sitting solid still, you know, and I definitely wouldn't have been in the meditation hall and allowed that to happen. You know, but in the room I did. I just let the body do its thing. I don't know what was happening. It was so primal. It was so non-verbal. Sometimes I think it was being pushed, you know, through the the womb in birth. Something like that, you know, and it was a kind of reenactment and re-experiencing of that disconnect that's so intense. The disconnect. Think of it, that birth that at once is so tender and so violent. You know, umbilical cord is cut the first time and, and, and that emergence, that merging energy, that oneness is cut off. We suddenly feel ourselves as this helpless, separate being. And we just need to be held, you know, suckled. That happens to us all the time. The experience of renunciation is that of, of freedom, of being carried along this moment-to-moment stream of, of generosity, possibility. Anything can happen. And it's all what is to be, all what is meant to be happening. The Dhamma is doing the work. It's delivering what needs to be felt. It needs to be known moment-to-moment. There's no mistake in meditation. Ooh, that mind moment, that's the mistake. That shouldn't be happening. Those sensations shouldn't be happening. What comes up is exactly what we need to know. You know, and we could talk about sort of big renunciation too, like big courage. Acts that we might make in our lives that are suddenly about faces. I think of Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader, democracy leader, Nobel Prize winner in Burma. I've talked about her. You know, people often have questioned who are new to Buddhism about the Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, leaving leaving his partner, his wife, and, ch- and child, even just right after the child was born. It's called the Great Renunciation, you know, his call to destiny. And it's hard to understand, isn't it, first? When uh, Aung San Suu Kyi got married to Michael Aries, 43, um, or 30-something years ago, uh, she said there was one condition, that if her country ever needed her, she'd have to go. You know, her father was assassinated when she was two years old. I don't know if I've mentioned, but General Aung San is the, the folk hero of Burma even today because he had this vision of a unified you know, union of Burma with autonomy for all the ethnic groups. And the current regime is, uh, is Burmanizing everyone. And so she stepped into her father's shoes and she went back when her mom was dying and her father's friend said, you know, will you help us? It coincided, again, destiny with the 1988 student democracy movement, revolution, where thousands of people were killed or disappeared. And there she was. She was asked to help her first speech, 500,000 people came. And later on, she was marching in, up in Upper Burma with a group of people protesting what was going on. And there was a platoon of soldiers given the order to shoot. She walked, you know, within about 30 yards and stopped with their guns aimed, cocked, and the command was to shoot, but they all sort of froze. She asked the people around her to move aside. 
Only one person needs to be killed if there's someone going to be killing. You know, was her thought. And the, um, you know, sweat was pouring off these soldiers and their commander. There's just this timeless moments. And the commander gave the order, you know, to stand down. Just stood there fearlessly, willing to renounce her own life for what she knows is right, for what she believes in, expression of fierce compassion. That helped me to understand and explain, you know, the great sacrifices of nuns and monks and the Buddha himself. When we have we feel a call to destiny, we have to make some change in our life, whatever it is. That is Dharma motivated. That is that brings us to the truth, opens us to the truth. A, a reminder about, again, it's very related to renunciation as a meditation practice, as a moment-to-moment -moment letting go, so that we can really connect with the immediate experience. A reminder about the, the foundation of mindfulness, vedana, meaning feeling, feeling tone. It's, it's so slippery, you know, so easy to miss. And time and again, we feel we have this experience of aversion or fear. And, you know, when asked, are you, are you noticing the leap from the experience, the trigger, whatever it is, a sound, a scent, a mental memory? Are you noticing the space or the, or the leap between that experience that arises in the moment and the reaction to it of anger or fear. Here's the connection again. I, I think we've all said it. it. In the moment of any experience, Sights, sounds, sense, tastes, sensations in the body, all mental states, in the same, wrapped up in the same moment, is that feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And to tune into that, and so there's many good reasons to do it. One is just to retrain that habitual pattern of reacting to feelings, not even knowing that the, not even being attuned to the feelings, just reacting to experience with either clinging, aversion, or bewilderment. That's one good reason. It retrains the mind from feeling, to, uh, from feelings, conditioning, craving to have or push away, to feelings, conditioning, awareness, and wisdom, and metta. Why? Because that feeling tone is, just, is ethically neutral. It carries no weight. It's unpleasant is not aversion. Pleasant is not the liking or attachment to the pleasant. Neutrality is where we often get lost you know, or bored or confused. Neutrality is connected to the root of delusion. Just as clinging is connected to the root of greed and angers connected to the root of ill will, so too uh, neutral feelings are connected to the root of, of ignorance. So tuning in to, you know, that neutral feeling is very subtle. I mean, that's where we sometimes get bored. Well, nothing's happening. We're looking for something more intense, a stronger feeling, even if it's pain. Another really good reason to remember 
to include feelings in our, in our field of awareness. Sometimes so much is happening. You know, there's unpleasant thoughts, there's uh, difficult, hard emotions, maybe many of them, fear and anger and confusion and sensations in the body that reflect that too, contraction, burning, the throat gets dry, the stomach feels tight, uh, the heart's palpitating, and we can't keep up with it all. You know, sometimes we, we just have a, a mindful bead on, on fear. And yeah, stay with it as long as it's arising. Stay with it. Go to the body. Feel that dry throat. Feel that contraction or butterfly belly or palpitating heart, whatever it is. But what about when it's just all too much? This is where awareness of feelings really opens the awareness up. You you don't have to deal with the story, the mental emotions and moods, the sensations of body. It can all be felt. You can be in the present moment. You can be here and now, just noticing the unpleasantness, attuning to unpleasantness. It's different than the reactive mind. We cut off the habitual reactive mind. Likewise, when it's all bliss and we start getting attached to to that, our calm, peace. Ah, this is it. This is real meditation. I like this unawares that we're cultivating craving, subtle craving. The more subtle our practice, the more subtle our hindrances. There's real subtle kinds of attachment that occur when the mind is deep, quiet, still. All of these, all of these four supporting virtues of mindfulness faith or courage or faith or confidence courage courageous energy patience acceptance renunciation which is letting go which is a shift from holding collecting to that spacious generosity all of these help allow the Dhamma to do its own work. Allows us to, as the Sayadaw said, just be in the present moment. You know, and what he means, I'll take care of everything else. You could say the Dhamma takes care of everything else. All those real difficult folds, knots, karmic energies. There's always a reward for our courage to feel them when, we, when we're able to feel them. Every deep, old, primal wound, contraction uh, is holding a very liberating energy. So every time we touch on that, you know, and just feel it for a few moments, the, some old deep fear Even in the moment, if not later, we feel the opposite. We feel a deep connection with life. Every time we feel an old place of anger, the energy of of love is released. Every time we feel that place of abandonment, of being manipulated or controlled or Whatever the fold is, it's, it's carrying its opposite. And likewise, you know, sometimes when you've had a really powerful, liberating experience and feel this abundance of energy and openness and connection, that can lead to another wave or another deeper fold of contraction again. Practice is a cycle. It's not linear. It's not successive. It's a timeless, mythological space. Don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> but you, we must trust 
that it is leading to more and more present time awareness. A few years ago, I went back to Burma after having been banned for four and a half years. And all my old friends came to see me and I taught a retreat. I felt really happy to see them. They called me, you know, my name, my Burmese name, Utanzen. And I looked around for him and couldn't find him. Something came to my awareness, you know, that I had overextended and taken on a whole lot or something was missing. Something was missing. I went home and made arrangements to come back to Burma, went up into the mountains in the hot season and sat a retreat very unconventional retreat. Michelle calls it feminine retreat. I like the term. No structure. Uh, And I picked up where I had left off grieving my dad's death years before when there was only two weeks to feel that grief. Needing his energy and his guidance. And then I had this memory when I was 11 years old. I had left a voicemail for myself 43 years later. The memory was of feeling totally tuned in and at peace with myself, with things as they are, connected, like really okay. Like I was, I really was feeling in, in a powerfully non-attached way my preciousness and worthiness the power of being alive. And noticing that people around me weren't within themselves in that way. Somehow I knew I shouldn't forget that. So I said many times to myself, I'm, I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. So I'm sitting up in the Shan Plateau in this little, my cottage, very unconventional retreat, you know, a lot of weeping and mourning and and going through some transformation I I felt I had no control over, I could only surrender to, and I remembered that 11-year-old. And uh, that was two and a half years ago. Uh, And he's been saying, you know, you've left some things behind that you need. You've left some treasures, some, some jewels, of your heart, of your depth. You need to come find them. I think every so often a portal opens up in one's life, maybe once or twice. That's all. My teacher talked like that. The Buddha talked that way. Carl Jung spoke that way. Is this this kind of opportunity to take some leap. You don't know where you're going to land and it's the sense of leaving everything you've ever known behind. And you know you cannot do it and live not having known something that's calling you. Or you can jump through risking everything and following that call. Close with the teachings of the Buddha. He said, the true disciple dwells contemplating mind all the time without a miss, fully knowing, comprehending with insight that it is transient, impermanent, and unenduring and cannot remain for two successive moments the same. Thus the disciple, imbued with the knowledge of impermanence and free from defilement, can attain and realize Nibbana in this very life.